Hi, my name is Simon Luckhurst, and this is Season 2 of Ear Movies, Conversations with Buck Thumper. For a podcast where Season 1 was spawned on the vanguard of the first COVID lockdown, where I rushed to get my readers into booths while it was still possible, Season 2 hasn't been so lucky. Lulled into the false sense of security we had in Sydney prior to the current outbreak, I left it just a bit late for the final readers. Of course, by the time you hear this, the situation may have changed, so that a full roster of stories now makes up Season 2. I hope so. In the COVID interregnum that occurred between our first and second lockdowns, we were able to go back to the pub. Sitting in the Tudor Hotel in Redfern one afternoon, I saw a familiar face. I'd known the composer Trevor Brown from Wollongong days, and went over and said hi. He told me what he'd been working on, I told him what I was doing. I was blessed that he agreed to collaborate on ear movies. What an amazing job he's done. The concept for Between a Rock and a Hard Place came while I was bushwalking. I won't tell you which thing came to mind because I don't want to spoil the story. It was one of those questions that lingered asking, what if? Lynette Curran's an actor who's been on my radar for years. I love that scene in the movie Bliss, where she walks into the boardroom with two Jeroboams full of petrol, but there's plenty of other screen highlights I could mention as well. Having her read this story was a real privilege. between a rock and a hard place. Marg Brennan was as hard as the granite boulders in the paddocks around her. She was large-breasted, wide-hipped and skinny-legged. Her hair was long and arctic white. She lived in one of the three houses at the end of Sullivan's Lane, a winding strip of rust-coloured dirt about 60 kilometres east of Goulburn. The place was called Eight Mile, although where it was eight miles from, no one knew. The houses were fibro with brick foundations. They had chimneys, small windows, and their front doors faced the lane. Marg lived in one, and the other was occupied by Curly Morton. From the side, he looked like an ironing board with a basketball stuck on the front. It was just them and the landscape, scorched in summer ice hard in winter. Marg and Curly hadn't spoken for years. Both of them checked their windows before going outside in case the other was within talking distance. In many ways, it was the most satisfying relationship either of them had ever had. 
To reflect the number of houses, there were three decaying mailboxes where the lane met the highway. Marg's was peeling red, Curly's was green, and the other was silver. Marg checked for mail in the mornings, Curly checked in the evenings. Both ran old cars. Marg's was an apparently immortal Toyota. Curly had a series of Mazdas, and when they died, he left them to rust behind his house. He used them for spares, chicken coops, or target practice. There were seven of them. On Thursday of pension week, Curly would head to Goulburn. He wouldn't be back until Sunday afternoon, once he'd bought supplies and drunk all his money. Marg would go in on Fridays. She'd return home with her shopping and enough grog to get through the fortnight. She had a mountain of port bottles between the hill's hoist and her old dog run. Her place stank of stale grog, cigarette smoke and body odour. In the winter it was mouldy and in summer it was filled with dust. There was a long drop toilet halfway down the backyard. There was a trail leading to it which passed her old bottles and the rusted 44-gallon drum she used as an incinerator. She'd tell herself she scored a hat-trick if she made a deposit in all three on the one trip. Her laugh was an undeniable cackle. She had an old radio for company. She liked to listen to talk back, skipping from station to station to hear her favourite whingers. In summer, it could be stupidly hot for days. If her rusty water tank became low, she'd take a bucket to Boiling Down Creek. Watched by lazy sheep, she'd check her rabbit traps. In winter, her house was stupidly cold. She spent most of the year hauling timber into an old water tank, which had been cut in half and tipped on its side. The archaeology suggested this had happened in the 1950s. If the old newspaper she found in it hadn't just blown in there, she had a saw and an axe. She'd once been able to go all day with the axe, but these days she chose thinner branches to cut or snap and then drag home. There were enough trees around her and Curly to last a lifetime. She had her own patch without ever having to resort to a discussion about it. Curly had his and their boundaries were understood. The empty house was owned by Fran Wellings. Marg had found Fran face down in her front yard a decade before. Curly had stood at his back door watching. It was the last time they'd spoken. I think she's had a stroke, Marg had said. Better get her to hospital. Marg had brought around her Toyota, and between them they'd gotten Fran across the back seat. Curly had watched as Marg drove away. In the ten years since, neither she nor Curly had ventured inside Fran's place. The power must have been cut off, as there were no lights in the evenings anymore. The first sign of the change that was to come appeared when she checked her mail one morning. Fran had died in a nursing home in Crookwell. There was a notification of her funeral. No other details. Marg supposed some relative who had long forgotten her name but remembered where she lived had organised for it to be sent. 
She checked Curly's mailbox. He had a letter too. Perhaps Fran's relative had thought they'd all been friends. In fact, Marg and Fran had had more stand-up rows than anyone else she knew. Their fights weren't the bitter brooding bordering on eternal silence that had befallen her and Curly, but they were intense enough while they lasted. After a week or two, Fran would turn up at Marg's back door with some flowers she'd picked, a bottle of booze, once a side of lamb. True, her gestures were usually based on self-interest because she needed a hand with something or a lift into town, but Marg had forgiven her all the same. Fran had generally been good company, unless the grog got to her, then she could be a total bitch. She'd been a long time dying, Marg thought. On the walk back up the driveway, she startled a trio of emus. They ran away, forcing themselves through the old ring-lock fence, and then they were gone. Small feathers hung off the wire like dull tinsel, but it was tinsel just the same. Marg trudged back to the house. She didn't like funerals, but she was seldom invited anywhere, so she decided to go. Somewhere in her dusty wardrobe was a black frock, which was a mirror of the blue one she wore most days. They were shapeless, limp dresses which hung off her loosely in all the wrong places. She showered for the occasion, put her hair up with a thousand rusty pins and set forth in the Toyota. Just out of the range of the dust behind her, Curly set off in his Mazda. A convoy of loneliness, if ever there was one. A convoy of loneliness travelling to a reminder of heartbreak. She turned on the radio before she could think too much. The service was in the Catholic Church. The priest talked about God with only a tiny reminder of Fran tacked on at the end by a niece who barely knew her. Marg could have told them a lot more stories. After the coffin was in the ground, they stood awkwardly in the church hall, sipping shitty tea and eating dry scones. The nursing staff, who had spent so much of the last decade with Fran, talked quietly to themselves at one end of the hall. A few relatives stood in the middle. This left Marg and Curly at the other end. I thought she died years ago, Curly said eventually. Me too, Marg said after a while. Marg was surprised he'd spoken to her. Times passed, there'd have been a grog at the funeral, at least one bloke with a bottle. There'd been more than one bottle at most of the funerals she'd been to, Marg remembered. I'll get you one for later, Marg told him. She stopped in the drive-thru on the trip back. If she'd given it to him in Crookwell, he'd drink it driving home and kill himself, like as not. When she got back to Eight Mile, she saw something strange. There were tyre tracks in the gravel. Broad, deep, treaded tracks for a four-wheel drive. Nothing like their own skinny little wheels. Someone's cleaned up her yard, Curly said, grabbing the bottle. The dead wattle had been cut down, bright gold sawdust evidence. Logs were stacked neatly. You think they'll do something with her house? 
Curly said, unscrewing the bottle top and taking a deep swig. Well, I reckon they might. They can't, he said. They both knew that they could. Neither knew who they were. Oh, I don't like the look of it, Curly said. Mug ignored him, partly out of habit and partly out of desire for things to stay the same as they'd been for years. It didn't do to talk to Curly. It didn't do for things to change. It didn't do for people to try and make things better. Marg thought of herself as a practical person. If she'd been forced to explain her beliefs, she would have said she leaned closer to evolution than to God. Not that she ever had the kinds of conversations anymore where those sorts of topics came up. She was a save water by not washing, hard spitting, ass scratching if it was itchy kind of woman. This was partly why she felt surprised the next morning when her intuition told her to expect visitors. It wasn't the thought of visitors that shocked her, but the realisation that she possessed an intuition. As a rule, it had rarely bothered her over the years. Now it was demanding as much attention as the young men she knew in her twenties. She hoped her intuition wouldn't abandon her as ruthlessly. She took the precaution of pinning up her hair. At eight o'clock, she rolled a cigarette with her yellow fingers and sat on the veranda, waiting. From the corner of her eye, she saw smoke rising from Curly's chimney. She realised there were two plumes. One was emerging from between her fingers. The other was above his roof. From her perspective, the one was the child to the other. There was an art to smoke, she thought. Half an hour later, she heard the crunch of tyres as they hit the gravel of Sullivan's Lane. She could see the dust approaching. The car was going slowly. Curly appeared in his front yard. He looked at the dust, glared at Marg, and then went back inside, slamming the door, like the world was ending. There was a four-wheel drive ute loaded with material. There was also a van. Both looked new. Soon there were a dozen people standing in front of Fran's place. Occasional glances toward Marg, a few toward Curly's place. Marg knew he'd be watching from behind the curtain. They were waiting, Marg realised. Another car was on its way. A black Ford came into view, also loud on the gravel. Came to a halt next to the other cars. A man she recognised from the servers stepped out. A nephew or a lawyer? Hmm? Possibly both. And he was rummaging in his pockets. A key, Marg guessed correctly. He slowly opened Fran's front door and went inside. He returned very quickly, holding a handkerchief to his nose. Too long since Fran had left for anything to still be rotting. Must be just general decay and decrepitude, Marg thought. He'd probably react the same if he came inside hers, she realised. The man talked to a bloke in a cap. Their conversation lasted about five minutes. There was lots of pointing and indicating and gesturing. Then the bloke got into his car and without another glance he was gone. The visitors slowly filed inside the house. One, a young woman, remained outside, setting up a gas cooktop with a kettle on it. Packets of biscuits. They were very organised. She looked across to Marg, smiled. Marg nodded back. Christ, she was coming over. Morning, 
Mark offered as the woman drew close. Woman? Only just. Still young enough to be enthusiastic. My name's Brady. Jesus, Mark thought. Mark, she said, holding out her hand. The girl held out her own. Marg could see it was full of the vibrancy and hope of youth. Marg touched it reluctantly. Her own skin was worn and miserable. We're with the church, Brady said. We've come to help Mr. Piggott clean up the old place. You live here? You think I come here for my holidays, Marg said. <laughs> the girl actually laughed. You ever been inside? she asked, indicating Fran's place. All the time, once, Mark said. We were good friends for a long time. I was at her funeral yesterday, didn't see you there. I never knew her, Brady said. Mr Piggott asked if we'd help out, though. He wants the place fixed up. Why? Brady looked to Marg and then to the house and then back to Marg. For the new tenant, she told her. Would you like a cuppa? Ten minutes later, Marg was pretending to enjoy tea in a polystyrene cup. It was weak and pale. Water tasted better. Real tea came from her pot and was as dark and sweet as a good shit. She drank tea that had grabbed the cup she now held by the back of its neck and chuck it into a bag, along with all its brothers and sisters. Her tea would throw the lot of them into the creek without looking back. Mr. Piggott's offering very low rent, Brady said. We're going to find someone we can help by letting them live here. Yeah, what sort of person? We work with lone parents, immigrants, the disabled and former prisoners. I guess it'll be one of them. Or perhaps all four, Marg thought, a blind Vietnamese ex-con single mother. You could tick a few boxes on your entry form to heaven by helping a person like that. <laughs> Who lives in the other place? Brady asked. That'd be Curly. You think he'd want some tea? Marg shook her head. He likes to be left alone, she said. You been here long? Brady wanted to know. In Marg's experience, questions were a sign of hope and inexperience, and she didn't have much time for either. Uh, I've been here 40 years, she said. Oh, that's a long time, Brady told her. It had gone by quickly enough, Marg thought. She'd hardly noticed some years at all. They heard shouting then. It came from Fran's house. Suddenly the Christians were running inside and coming out and running around the yard and running back inside again. Like a bull ant's nest stirred with a stick. Marg had stirred up a few bull ants' nests in her time. The excitement was like a, a magnet, and Brady and Marg couldn't help but be drawn to it. Marg could see Curly was attracted as well. He drifted out of his house. He allowed himself to be dragged by the force of curiosity toward Fran's front fence. Marg had Brady as a boarding pass, and she let her new young Christian friend take her inside. It stank to high heaven, although this might have been in part due to the Christians having started to lift the carpet. It was a fine mix of rot and dust and age and abandonment and old dogs and misery. Did it always smell like this? Brady whispered. Not quite this bad, Marga answered. 
the house had been abandoned by a woman who had walked outside one morning the same as usual, then had a stroke and fallen forward. No one had been inside since. Marg knew there'd be dust in the milk cartons and dirt in the ice tray. There'd be plastic containers filled with the remainders of curried sausages and chicken schnitzels and lamb cutlets that were past their use-by date by a decade. Tutankhamen Tupperware A hubbub was coming from the bedroom. The Christians were gathered around something on the bed. There was a heated discussion going on. They're real. I did a course in Sydney. I guarantee they're genuine. But what had they been doing out here in the sticks? Somebody else asked. Brady pushed her way slowly forward and Marg followed. On the bed were three charcoal and pastoral sketches of Fran as a young woman. The canvases were frankly mesmerising. They're original Whiteleys, a Christian said. They can't be, another one replied. They are, Marg told them. The Christians went quiet as their eyes turned to Marg. Fran used to go on about him all the time. She said he'd sketched her. I didn't know she had them, though. The Brett Whiteley, another Christian asked. Is there more than one? Marg said. The one she'd been with lived in Sydney, had a few women running around after him. Curly blonde hair, a bit too fond of the gear. She knew him, an older Christian asked. They were together in the sixties. Then another chick came along and it all frizzled out. Fran was pissed off. Maybe that's why she took his drawings. <laughs> They'd be worth something now, wouldn't they? Eventually, someone said, actually, they'd be worth a lot. Marg looked at the three sketches. Fran had been pretty all right. She'd forgotten just how pretty. Sexy and inspiring. Spiritual. But they'd all been pretty back then. That night, just as she was about to head to bed, there was a tap on her door. Bugger off, she told Curly. The Christians had gone for the day. Their happiness and excitement from the discovery of the drawings had been almost unbearable. How long do you reckon those paintings were there? he asked. Since she came here, Marg said. One of the kids said they'd be worth thousands. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands, they told me, Marg answered. And all we had to do was go inside and find them, Marg shrugged. The realisation she'd lived next door to an undiscovered treasure for decades had crossed her mind as well. She didn't want to talk to Curly about it. She turned off the light and shuffled back down the hallway. The Christians came back the next day and continued fixing up the old place. They gaily painted here, happily hammered there, joyfully glued and sawed and cleaned and replaced stuff all over the bloody place. They took load after load to the tip. Buggered if they didn't sing as they carted away the pile of bottles in Marg's backyard and towed away the cars in Curly's. Tuneful terror, Mark thought. How long until they come for us? 
Despite the work on the yards, however, Fran's house was the only one they wanted to repair. Marg was happy about that, but the Christians were always outside, smiling, chattering, offering endless pale shadows of tea. They painted the outside of Fran's house, and it stood out like a sore thumb. One afternoon, about ten days after they'd arrived, Marg heard a soft tap on her door. It was Brady. She held a cake. I thought you might like this, she said. Only we've finished and it'll all go to waste. Thanks, Mark said. Never one to look a fruitcake in the mouth. What do you think, Brady wanted to know. Well, you did a good job, Mark told her. Fran would have loved it. You'll meet the new tenant soon, Brady said. Mark watched her walk to the van. She's a holy bloody assassin, Mark thought. It had hardly been tolerable with Curly giving her the silent treatment for the last ten years. She didn't want to think what it would be like if someone actually tried to talk to her. They waited for the new tenant to turn up. Curly stayed longer in town for his bender. He was pissed off about not finding the Brett Whiteleys himself. Marg knew that if she'd found the sketches, she would have been on a bus to Sydney in a second. She would have said that Fran had given the pictures to her and no one could have denied it. Marg guessed Fran had taken the sketches as payment for a broken heart. Whiteley probably would have wanted to keep them because even with her uncultured eye, Marg could tell they were special. In the spider web of crayon and chalk, he'd really captured her likeness. But more than that, he caught her magic and spirit as well. They'd sat there next to Marg and Curly for a decade. And but for laziness or lack of curiosity or even care to make sure the house was in good state, God had found them and given them to charity. A hundred thousand dollars would have made a real bloody difference. She could have lived comfortably for the rest of her life instead of relying on the useless pension. Only bloody Curly would have been knocking on the door all the time demanding money for Grog. She knew in her heart that if she'd found the money, she'd have kept giving it to him until he drank himself to death. <sighs> More than that, she would have as well. She stirred under the covers and hauled herself out of bed. There'd been a frost. She'd slept in her dress, so she didn't have to bother about putting it on now. She lit the fire and boiled the kettle and made a pot of tea, real tea, not Brady's pale piss. She made toast over the fire. There was some strawberry jam from the last market she'd been to and she spread it thickly. She turned on the radio, she settled back and ate, sipping her tea. <sighs> Times like this she didn't need anything else. Around two she went for a walk. The frost was gone, but the grass was still wet. It was quiet. It was only a ten-minute walk to the creek. She had a couple of rabbit traps down there, the old metal kind with cruel jaws. There was a decent-sized bunny struggling to get free in the first one. One of its back legs held tightly. She broke its neck almost absent-mindedly and reset the trap. The other was empty. The rabbit was warm and limp. Down at the creek it was the work of seconds to gut it and skin it. 
She had half a dozen skins stretched over U-shaped 10-gauge rusted wire frames. She set this one up as well. She washed the carcass and sat it carefully on a rock. Sometimes for variety she'd try for yabbies. She'd often get them too, but she didn't bother today. Today she was content just to sit. Although it was winter, a pair of dragonflies flitted around. They dived across the water's surface or occasionally came to rest on the grass. Then she saw something unusual. The edges of the creek were lined with rocks, for the most part covered with grass and leaves. About fifty yards off, there was one about six inches across. It was round like a granite cricket ball. It looked like it was hovering. She watched it for five minutes. It was the strangest thing. And then she realised it must be something Curly had done. It had be hung up by fishing line. She thought he'd given up art yonks ago. When she walked over, however, she realised she was wrong. It was just floating. It was sitting about a foot above the ground. There was nothing underneath it and nothing holding it up. It was just hanging in the air. She lay in bed the next morning in the same dress she'd worn for days. She was thinking about the rock. Was there a miracle left in the world? She wondered if she should take the Christians to see it. Maybe that was her purpose. She hoped it wasn't. She didn't want to be remembered, if she was to be remembered at all, as a non-spiritual tour guide in the greatest spiritual story of our time. She'd be a footnote on the arse end of the second coming. She lay in bed, pondering. Then she heard a car pull up outside. Doors were slammed, footsteps on the gravel, low-murmured voices. Then, doors opening and closing again, followed by the car departing. Had they left someone here? Was there a crippled migrant ex-criminal lurking outside? It was very quiet. She got up and went to the fireplace. She quickly had the fire going. She put on the kettle. As soon as it boiled, she made her toast. She was determined that today was going to be the same as any other. When she looked outside, there was no one there. Down at the creek, the damn rock was still floating, hovering, hanging in midair. She ran her hand underneath it. She ran her hand above it. No obvious means of support or suspension. She tried moving it, and it felt as heavy as a rock its size should be. She tried to drag it away from its spot, but it glided back into position as soon as she let go. It didn't sink and it didn't rise. It just hung there. On pension day, Marg was happy enough to drive into Goulburn. She stopped at the library and looked through some books on geology. The closest she found to a floating rock was pumice. She knew her rock wasn't pumice. She wondered if this was a second opportunity for treasure. How much would a floating rock be worth? She stocked up on groceries and tobacco. She bought wine and petrol. There was nothing more she needed. She didn't want to go home yet, though. She passed Curly's car outside the Royal. Once she would have gone in and joined him, Fran would have been there too. <laughs> They'd been quite the gang. They'd shared a lot of quick years. 
She drove on. She stopped at a truck stop on the edge of town and bought a cola. Then, standing right next to her, someone she knew. Mark! Hello, Brady! Mark sucked on her straw. She wasn't that big on cola, but it was a treat when she came into town. She was buggered if Fran's death, floating rocks, or the sudden miraculous appearance of Brady was going to stop her. We've showed a few people the old house, but they haven't wanted to move in. They don't like it. They have needs that won't be met there. Mark took another suck. What sort of needs? She wanted to know. Transport, allergies. One woman had agoraphobia. Oh, that's unfortunate, Mark told her. I'm sure we'll find someone soon, Brady said. Mm, I can't wait, Mark replied. The rock was still there the next day. Marga come down with an old shaft bag. She slowly lowered it over the rock and started to drag it away. She set off all right, but the further she moved from the rock's starting point, the more difficult it became. After about ten yards, she couldn't go any further. The harder she hauled on the end of the sack, the more resistant she felt. She was buggered. She gave up. She took off the sack and watched the rock float gently as a cloud back to where she'd first seen it. She couldn't get the car down there, so there was no point trying to drag it away from the creek that way. <sighs> she sighed and gave up. She watched the rock and the water and the dragonflies for a while. The afternoon was quiet, and she watched the rock so long she nearly fell asleep. The following morning, there were more tyre noises on the gravel. More door slams, muttered voices, a muted laugh, and then doors opening and an engine started before tyre noises again. The Christians couldn't find anyone who wanted to live there, Marg realised. That was fine with her. The next morning, she hurried through her tea and toast routine and then went back down to the creek. Nothing there. She poked around for about half an hour, but she couldn't even find a rock on the ground that looked like the one she'd seen in the air. Was she going mad? Just yesterday, a rock had been floating in mid-air. She'd touched it, and it didn't want to be moved. Now it was gone. Perhaps the simplest thing was just not to come down to the creek anymore. Then she wouldn't be bothered by airborne geology. She checked her traps on the way back up the house, but there was nothing. A car came up the driveway. She knew without looking that it was Curly's. She heard his car door slam and his footsteps crunch up to his house. Quiet for a moment. Another slam, this one his rear screen door as he went out the back to see his chooks. She half considered going over and telling him about the rock. He was an asshole, but he was a clever asshole. He'd want to take over, though. And if any wolf came from the rock, he'd want to claim the lion's share. They'd spoken more in the last week than in the previous decade. 
Could they resume a regular conversation? No, it'd be too difficult. There'd be expectations then of chats and visits and good mornings. Expectations were damn things. You didn't say good night last night. Well, you didn't say good morning yesterday. Really, their bottles were their only friends. Fran had somehow made it workable. Without her, everything had fallen apart. Should she try again, though? There's a moment when you make a decision to move, to get out of bed, stoke the fire, reach for the next glass. One minute you're sitting there pondering, the next you've suddenly done it. That moment didn't come. There was no impetus for her to stand, to go down the short hall, to walk outside and find him. A never-happened future. She decided to hate curiosity for the rest of her life. She sat inside drinking and feeling bitter that she'd been offered a fortune and a miracle that had both disappeared so quickly. She was lying in bed about ten days later. It was past the time she normally got out of bed, but it was cold, and there was no real reason to get up, and she was feeling seedier than usual, and so she was stretching out the morning. Her eyes were shut, and she felt a fly glance across her cheek. She brushed it away and nearly broke her hand. With a cry of pain, she opened her eyes, not understanding how a fly could be so hard. It was the rock! At least it looked like the same rock. It was hovering over the other side of the bed. She didn't move. She just lay there watching it. It didn't move. A few minutes passed. Hello, she said. The rock remained silent. After a while, she grew uncomfortable with it hanging in the air watching her. If it had eyes and she got out of bed. She was still dressed from yesterday, but it was cold, so she threw her robe on as well. She walked to the kitchen, and halfway there she turned and saw the rock was following her. She wasn't sure what to do. She lit the fire, put on the kettle, made her toast. All the time the rock hovered about a yard behind her, and when she walked to the cupboard, it followed her, and when she went back to the fire, it came with her. She really needed to go to the toilet but wasn't sure if she wanted the rock with her. She'd been up 20 minutes, though. She'd had a cuppa and two pieces of toast and the first durry of the day. This was the time she usually went to the toilet. She realised that at this point she didn't have a choice. She hurried down the path, she pulled down her knickers, hoiked up her dress and sat down. She shut the door. Then she heard a sound. Knock, knock, knock. The sound of stone on wood. She wiped herself. She stood up and opened the door. The damn thing was hovering there like a bloody puppy. She looked closely at it. There were occasional bright reflections off the tiny crystals on its surface as it moved in the sun. Three kinds of rocks she remembered from school. Igneous, which came from volcanoes, sedimentary, which formed under the sea, and metamorphic, which was when sedimentary rocks were affected by great heat. Obviously, there was a fourth kind, she decided. Without quite being conscious of what she was doing, she stretched out her hand towards it. The rock floated closer to her. 
Abruptly, she was touching it, like she was tickling under its chin, if it had a chin. Scritch, scritch, scritch. It liked it. She couldn't say how she knew. When she walked up the path, it was closer to her. When she sat in her lounge chair and rolled another smoke with her yellowed, creased fingers, it was practically at her shoulder. And when she lit the cigarette and relaxed back in her seat and put her feet up, it came right to her and slowly lowered itself into her lap. She realised after a few minutes she was stroking it. Marley and the rock became inseparable. If she walked around the property, the rock floated beside her. <laughs> she would chat to it. It always seemed to know if Curly was around because it would drop to her feet seconds before he came into view. It would wait there, as inert as the million rocks around it, until he passed. As there was no conversation between him and Marg, this never took long. Then slowly the rock would rise again to the level of her waist, which seemed to be its preferred height. If she went into town, she'd drive with it on the seat next to her. If she was shopping, she'd put it in her bag. Despite its size, it wasn't heavy. She took to sleeping with it. It's not my place to say if she and the rock became lovers. I can't say whether some bond was created between them on those cold mornings under the covers when loneliness and love connected with trust and truth to forge foreign behaviours. She did seem happier, though. Over the next three months, the Brett Whiteley sketches briefly became famous and had even featured on one of the talkback programs Mark listened to. There were arguments over who owned them, the Whiteley estate or Fran's. The Whiteley lawyers argued they'd been stolen by Fran. Fran's people said that as he'd never reported them stolen, they were obviously a gift. Marg listened to the debates, stroking her rock in her lap like it was a sleeping cat. The court eventually settled in Fran's family's favour. The nephew had given the pictures to the church. Then they found a tenant for the house. The first Marg knew of their arrival was a small removalist truck coming slowly up the drive. It was followed by the van full of Christians. Marg began to prepare herself for the onslaught of Brady's cheerfulness, but then realised she was actually looking forward to it. Somehow she now had some optimism of her own, although she knew she could never tell Brady about the rock. But Marg's house was tidier, and her clothes were washed more often. She'd even taken to showering regularly. She dug out her dentures, and sure enough, Brady came to the front door with her banal polystyrene-clad tea. They sat there chatting. How Marg had been and what Brady had been doing and, and the good work of the pastor with all the money that the church had gotten from sale of the sketches. Like they were old friends. Marg was wearing an apron with large pockets. The rock sat in one. Marg wondered if Brady could see the bulge, and if she could, what she thought it was. 
It took a long time to find a tenant, Brady said. I mean, it's a cheap house, but it's a long way out of town, so quite a few people didn't want to live here. I can imagine, Marg said. The rock stirred briefly, like a puppy getting more comfortable before going back to sleep. Then they heard a car horn. Ah, that's my cue, Brady said. I'll be off. Nice to see you again, Marg. You too, Marg said. She watched Brady walk to the others. A new neighbour. How were they going to handle this? He was from Malawi. An economic refugee, he explained, wanting a better life for himself and his family. Only his family was still in Africa. He'd work to get them out here. After his wife and children, he'd bring out his parents and hers and so on. A huge extended family it would take him decades to transport. His name was Zander. He was tall and handsome. <laughs> Bit of a dump out here, isn't it? he said. I was hoping to end up in Sydney. Melbourne would have been good too, anywhere near the sea, really, but here, well, it's quiet. Hmm, I suppose it is. Does it grow on you? She shook her head. Not really sure how I got here. I meant to go north where it was warmer and greener, but we got stuck here. The rent was too cheap. You know the man? Curly, yeah, I know him. He used to be friends, but we parted ways. What about the woman? Marg smiled. Fran was my friend for years. Curly was better when she was around. I'm going to do a lot, Xander said. Get a garden going, develop handicrafts. Perhaps a sheep will occasionally disappear from paddocks nearby and you can share some with me. <sighs> oh, I was going to grow vegetables once, Marg admitted. Why didn't you? Water's too far, she said. Zander shrugged. In my country, we carry water all the time. Must be tiring, Marg told him. He smiled. We do what has to be done, but we're not the poorest country in the world. Well, that's something, she said. Third from the bottom, but not the poorest. Over the next few months, Zander transformed Fran's place from a barren, dusty, typical Australian backyard came a lush, plentiful garden. He spent hours each day patiently hauling up bucket after bucket of water. One day, the Christians appeared with rolls of polypipe. They'd seen his commitment and put in a pump, and soon he had even more land under cultivation. He grew the crops he knew. Peppers, tomatoes, maize and beans. He regularly offered Marg stews that made her mouth water. They were flavoured with spices he ordered from a warehouse in Sydney. Despite his optimism and happy nature, she grew to like him. It seemed that the closer she and Xander became, the more Curly retreated. He was hardly on the property at all anymore. On several occasions, Marg considered showing Xander the rock, but her gut feeling was that it wasn't a good idea. The rock remained her silent secret. It followed her around her house, sat in her lap lightly and happily, and slept next to her at night. 
She'd wake in the dark to find it against different places in her body, and she never complained. Zander's garden bloomed, and he had a successful stand at the local farmer's market, and he began to talk of the time his wife and children would join him. A family at Eight Mile. It didn't seem possible. Mark suspected it would kill Curly, if you could kill something that was so nearly dead already. She heard him coughing in the night, wheezing so loud it filled the distance between their houses. She'd seen him sitting on his tiny porch, the red ember of his cigarette a beacon to the uncaring. Don't judge me, it said. I've lived a full life on my own terms and will not ever sway from the path of overindulgence. She heard her own coughs as well, the hacking strain to expel the mucus sediments of decades. She wondered how long until she joined him. Xander had tried to talk to Curly, but he'd turned away. Too late for another friend. One morning she walked to Curly's door with toast. He was pale-eyed and wore only pyjama bottoms. It was time. He ushered her inside and she nursed him. He didn't die as quickly as she thought he might. There was resilience in him yet. He sat up in his bed and she fed him weak chicken soup made from his own chickens, her water and Xander's carrots and corn. Let go, you old fool, she'd whisper to him in the night. She wondered what would happen after he went. Would the Christians descend again and transform his house like they'd done with Franz? Import another changer of the landscape? She didn't want to think of the place without Curly. We were so young, she told him one morning half asleep after a night of coughing and mopping his damp brow. We were going to change the world. His eyes watered. I loved you, she said. He nodded again. She thought of the three of them, her and Curly and Fran. She remembered the combinations of love they'd made. She thought of all the jealousies, forgivenesses, hopes and disappointments that had brought them here to the edge of age. And soon beyond it. You want me to do anything for you? She asked. Where do you want to be buried? Don't care, he whispered through strained lungs eventually. Anyone you want me to tell? He shook his head. She knew he'd lost his people long ago. <sighs> Just us then, she said. He smiled. She couldn't help herself. She took the rock out of her pocket and let it hang in the air between them. He watched it. A floater, he said at last. You know about them, she asked him. Of course, floaters and all the rest. There are others, she asked. He began to talk. You got your floaters and you got your invisibles. You got your movers and shakers and your immovables. You got your softies and your bangers, your timers, your changes, your shiners. <sighs> he paused to think. Your colours... Hotties and coldies, you, you got your lovers and you got your stubbers. You got your munchies and you got your munches. <sighs> that 
they were his last words. They got permission to bury him halfway between the house and the creek. There were one or two old graves there already. In about three years, Mark joined him. By that time, Xander and his family had transformed Eight Mile. They had a thriving market garden. They built a vegetable stall where Sullivan's Lane met the highway and eventually a successful arts and crafts centre, which people would drive out to visit on Sunday afternoons. Some of them moved into Curly's place. Mark's house became their workshop and art gallery. No one ever knew what happened to the rock. That was Lynette Curran reading Between a Rock and a Hard Place. We recorded in Nut and Butter Studio in Marrickville, and it was mastered at King Sound Studios. The music was by Trevor Brown. Please check out his website. There's links from earmovies.com. Season 2 of Earmovies is brought to you in a shameless plug for my audiobook Charlie's Wives, read by Robert Hansen. Based on a true fragment of history, Charlie Brewster writes letters for African-American army wives to their husbands at the front during the American Civil War. In a world of violence and PTSD, he starts to learn about intimacy and women. One afternoon, Charlie was distracted by a knock on his office door. It was his manservant, Peter, a dour former slave from Missouri. Massa Brewster, someone to see y'all. Please don't call me master. Who's here? he asked. Tensie Stevens, sir. She was a large woman. She looked to be in her mid-thirties. He knew why she was here. There was no point beating around the bush. I don't need no one to clean. Tensie glanced quickly at the state of the room. I don't know about that, massa, but that ain't the reason I'm a-calling. You can buy Charlie's Wives from Audible. Or get the hard copy from Amazon or the ebook from Kindle. There are links on the Ear Movies website. Please come back for more of Conversations with Buck Thumper, Season 2 of Ear Movies. I'm Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening.